Hello, everyone, and happy Easter to all of you. A man once telephoned his friend, and his friend's little boy answered the telephone. The man said, is your dad there? Little boy said, no, he, he's not. Well, is your mom there? No, she's with my dad. And the kid was kind of whispering as he said these things. Well, where are they? They're with the policeman. And, and where's the policeman? He's with the fireman. And where's the fireman? He's with the helicopter pilot. Now, let me get this right. You mean your dad is with your mom, they're with the policeman, they're with the fireman, and they're with the helicopter pilot? Yes. Well, what are they doing? They're looking for me. <laughs> now, I like that little story, silly as it is, because a lot of people are looking for something and they just don't know where to find it. A man named Thomas was one of the early followers of Jesus, and he was on a search. He was looking for hope and a sense of assurance or proof that he simply had not found yet. Jesus had been crucified and was buried, and most thought it was all over. But there were rumors there were rumors that he had been seen alive again. Some had testified to it. And in John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 19, we read, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now think about that. They were in social isolation because of fear of what the authorities might do to them. But Jesus showed up in the room. We too are practicing social, social isolation for a number of reasons, out of concern uh, for our families, out of love for them, our friends, our neighbors. And my prayer this Easter is that he will show up and reveal himself to you as well. We read on in verse 24. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. By the way, that's why he's been dubbed Doubting Thomas. And when someone is skeptical about something, even today, we may say, ah, you're just a pure old Doubting Thomas. But you know, Thomas was not the only person who ever doubted. Doubt is a common human experience. My guess is that many of you have serious doubts about your faith and beliefs. You see the suffering in the world around you today and you wonder, why would God allow such a thing to go on? We probably all feel at times like the man who said to Jesus, I do believe, Lord, help my unbelief. There's almost always a mixture there. I read a true story about a man once who came to Christ 
full of doubts. And when he became a Christian, he prayed a prayer, believe it or not, that went something like this. He said, oh God, if there is a God, please save my soul if I have a soul and take me to heaven when I die if there is a heaven. (laughs) And yet, amazing as it seems, God met him and saved him even at the point of his doubts. I want us to understand today that while doubts can be difficult, doubt is not always an enemy. Actually, honest doubt is a friend. Honest doubt is a friend if it leads you to explore your faith and search for truth. Then it's your friend. Well, Thomas was doubting because he had been absent when Jesus first appeared to the other disciples. So he had not seen the risen Christ as they had. And when Thomas eventually arrived, we read in verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Now, what caused Thomas to doubt like that? I want to consider some reasons or possibilities. First, when we think about the contributors to his doubt, I believe we get at least three clues from the story itself. One of the key things that contributed to his doubt may have been his isolation. See, Thomas was not with the fellowship, with the other disciples when they met Jesus. And I think that's significant. I sometimes hear people say, well, pastor, I can be a Christian without being a part of the church. And you know, technically, technically that's true. Yes, you can, but you'll never thrive as a Christian outside of the community of believers. We need one another. As I've often said, the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. We will never thrive in isolation. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the best-known preacher in the UK in the 19th century, was once talking with someone in front of the fireplace in his home. And this person said, Well, why do I need to go to church to be a Christian? Can't I just know Christ myself personally and kind of do my own thing? And Spurgeon, without answering, took some tongs and picked a glowing red ember from the fireplace and placed it on the hearth by itself. They continued talking for a few minutes. And then after a while, Spurgeon said, look at that ember. All the fire has gone out of it. It's on the hearth, isolated, and now it's turned cold. And then he said, if you stay away from the people of God, the gathered church, your isolation will take the fire out of your heart and your life. And I believe Thomas' isolation fed his skepticism. That's one of the many reasons we urge you, even in the midst of this pandemic, to join in with some of these online groups that are meeting. Even though we can't 
physically meet together, you will find a warm and accepting fellowship with these groups. Isolation was a problem for Thomas, and it is for us as well. I think the second contributor to his doubt may have been a pessimistic temperament. (laughs) You know, some people are just negative by temperament. And Thomas was no stranger to the miracle of resurrection. If you study the Gospels, you'll see he was the only disciple named with Jesus when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Thomas also saw Jesus go into the room of Jairus' daughter and raise her from the dead. Thomas saw that. He saw her alive again. And when they were walking one day and saw a woman following her son's coffin to his funeral, she's known in the Bible as the widow of Nain, That's the little village she was from. Jesus raised her son from the dead. And Thomas was there. He had seen all of this, and yet he's pessimistic about this idea that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Years ago, when I was a little kid in elementary school, we had to learn the multiplication tables. Many of you did as well. One times... One is one. One times two is two. Two times two is four. Three times two is six. Four times two, uh, let's see. I think I've forgotten the rest of it. But it goes on and on and on. And then you get to the three times and the four times and the five times. You go all the way up to the 12 times table And the top one at the very top that we learned as little kids in elementary school was 12 times 12 is 144. And we thought that was awesome. That's as far as we went. A little girl was asked one day, what's 13 times 13? She said, don't be so silly. There's no such thing. Well, you know, sometimes when we hear things that are outside of our own experience, we're tempted to respond, don't be so silly. There's no such thing as that. And although Thomas had seen at least three resurrections, for some reason, he was still skeptical and pessimistic. By the way, have you ever noticed that when Thomas speaks in Scripture, you can read this for yourself in the Gospels, he's always rather gloomy and negative. It's kind of funny. First time is in John 11 when he tells his disciples, Jesus tells them that their friend Lazarus is dead. He's going to go and visit the family. And Thomas says, let us go also that we may die with him. Wow, what a ray of sunshine you are, Thomas. Yeah, let's just all go and die. That's very helpful, Thomas. Thank you very much. The second time is in the upper room in John chapter 14, where Jesus told them he was going to prepare a place for them. And he said in John 14, verse four, you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas interrupts him. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And then the third occasion is here when Thomas misses being with the other disciples when Jesus first appears. And he says in verse 25, as we've already seen, 
unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Now, please don't miss my point. There are some people who are temperamentally just going to struggle with positive belief. When others see stars, they see scars. When others see the glass half full, they see it half empty. And perhaps that's Thomas. His attitude is, don't be so silly. There's no such thing as a resurrection. The third contributor to his doubt may have been plain old stubbornness. Now, notice again, verse 25. He said to them, we'll read it again, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I, catch this, I will not believe it. Notice that. He doesn't say, I just cannot believe it. No, he says, I will not believe it. In other words, my problem is not an intellectual problem. I can't believe this. It's actually a volitional problem. I will not believe it. And for many people, it's not actually the intellectual issues that are the problem. It's their will. It's their volition. Listen, you can make up your mind not to believe. You can find a million reasons not to believe because you you actually don't want to believe. You ask, wait, wait a minute, Pastor, why would Thomas or, or anyone not want to believe? There are lots of reasons. For instance, it would usually require quite a change of lifestyle, and that makes us uncomfortable. But the biggest hurdle for most people is pride. You see, repentance is an acknowledgement. Hey, I've been going the wrong way here. I'm going to swallow my pride and turn around, and that is so hard for us to do. So we keep putting up intellectual smoke screens as reasons why we don't believe, when it's really a volitional thing. We just choose not to believe. Well, these are the contributors to his doubt. But second, I want you to consider today the conundrum of Thomas' doubt. Here's what I mean by that. His conundrum is the conundrum of millions of people today. Simply put, he wants physical proof to base his belief on, but he just doesn't have it. We've been stressing his words over and over. Unless I see the nail marks right there in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. Now, to want physical proof seems reasonable to me. I mean, after all, that's what the other 10 disciples got, wasn't it? They experienced physical proof. And just for the record, the New Testament makes a big deal about the physical evidence for Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. For instance, John writes in 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. In other words, John says, look, what I'm proclaiming to you is not a theory. It's not a philosophy. This is not something uh, 
you know, that we just think about. This is something we've experienced with our physical senses. It's physical. It's real. And Thomas wants that physical, real evidence. But his conundrum is that he doesn't have the proof he wants. And when we're in a conundrum like that, we often want to make deals. <laughs> have you ever have you ever tried to strike a deal with God? God, if you'll just do this or just do that, if you'll just heal this person, if you'll just change my spouse, Lord, if you'll just give me that promotion, oh, then I will believe. But God usually doesn't play that little game because these are not the things that bring you to Christ. And Thomas was in a conundrum of unbelief. But I want to wrap up today by talking a little bit about the conclusion of Thomas' doubt. I want you to notice verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. So he's present this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Have you ever noticed that Thomas had a whole week, a whole week to wrestle with his doubts and probably debate them with the other disciples, and he's still not convinced a whole week later. I find it intriguing, really, that Jesus gave Thomas time and space with his doubts. Friends, particularly those of you who may have friends or loved ones who are not believers yet, let's be careful about trying to speed people through the process of doubt and coming to conviction. These things usually take time. You see, doubt is sometimes good and it's sometimes bad. It's good. Doubt is good when it leads to honest inquiry and exploration. Then it's good. It's bad when it becomes an excuse. Doubt is bad when it becomes an excuse for not dealing honestly with the evidence. But the Holy Spirit often works slowly and gradually in people's lives. A woman watched a butterfly as it struggled to work its way out of the cocoon. And after a while, she began to feel sorry for this cute little creature that was struggling so much. And she took a tiny little knife and carefully cut the cocoon enough to help the butterfly work its way out. And sure enough, it did. The butterfly got out, it stretched its wings, and then it just fluttered down to the ground, stayed there for a while on the ground, and soon it died. This dear woman discovered too late that the struggle to get out of the cocoon is what makes the butterfly's wings strong. That struggle, slow and arduous as it is, is crucial for later flourishing. In reducing the struggle, she had actually destroyed its ability to fly. And when it comes to faith, sometimes we try to bring people to firm conclusions too quickly. There's a process of faithful sowing and watering 
and then the reaping comes. Every farmer knows the key to a good harvest is patience. And so Jesus holds back. I mean, wouldn't you have thought that when Thomas said, unless I put my finger in his side, I won't believe. Wouldn't you think that that evening Jesus might have just shown up and said, hey, Thomas, Thomas, what's the problem here, buddy? It's time you wake up, dude. When are you going to get over your pessimism and doubt? And Thomas would have believed, of course. But no, he knew Thomas needed space. He knew Thomas needed time to work through this. But one week later, the time had come, and Jesus made another physical appearance. And in verse 27, it says, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And of course, Thomas didn't need at that point to touch him because as Thomas responded, he knew that he knew that he knew that he knew that this was real. And he says in verse 28, my Lord and my God. Notice Thomas did not say, okay, now all my questions are answered and I'll never have another question or doubt in my life. No, his response was, because he is my Lord, because he is my God, I will go on and on and on discovering answers, but I won't have them all in advance. This is gonna be a journey. And Jesus told him in verse 29, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Only that first generation had the privilege of seeing. But you and I have the privilege of believing without seeing physically. As the Holy Spirit convicts us and assures us that Christ is all sufficient. So what, what happened to Thomas after this? Well, there's a lot of evidence that he actually traveled farther from home than any of the other apostles. He took the gospel all the way to India and actually died there as a martyr. The struggle out of the cocoon of doubt was worth it. He worked through his doubts and he went from being doubting Thomas to dynamic Thomas, a true champion who soared for Jesus Christ. And I don't know, but maybe you feel a bit like Thomas today. Perhaps you've been isolated from authentic people of faith and, and the ember has lost its fire. Or maybe, maybe you'd call yourself a believer, but when you've tried to engage more deeply, perhaps God felt distant to you. Or perhaps your life circumstances have have been very painful and have caused you to doubt God's love and care. Today, this very day, may be a day of transformation for you. Jesus said to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. I wonder, would you be willing to do that today? Some of you may say, well, pastor, years ago I became a Christian, but I don't know, I have lots of questions today. Would you be willing to get back into the fellowship of believers, into a place where you can ask those questions? 
We have all kinds of ways you can do that, even in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic. Some of you have never, ever trusted Christ as your Savior. I wonder, will you stop doubting and believe? Would you be willing to say, my Lord and my God, and Christ will meet you at that point? I'm going to invite you to do something right now. I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer with me. Now, I know you may be in your living room. You may be alone or with others. You may be in your car. You may be out somewhere just walking, maybe across an open space all alone listening to this. Or you may be, you may be in, your, in your home with family members all around. It doesn't matter where you are. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer phrase by phrase after me and invite Christ to forgive your sin and be your Lord and Savior. Your physical posture is not critical, but the posture of your heart is. So please, humbly, humbly pray this prayer after me. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross, to pay the penalty my sins demanded. I turn from my sin. I turn to you. Please forgive all my sins. Adopt me into your family and begin to change me, Lord, from the inside out. I surrender my life to you. 